Good morning. Welcome to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Your Toronto Blue Jays didn't play last night, which is, uh, it worked out in this case. There aren't many times that I'm going to want the Blue Jays to be off. But the deciding night of the NBA Finals isn't a bad one for it. Jamal Murray of Kitchener, Ontario is an NBA champion now. I just did an hour with J.D. Bunkus breaking down the NBA Finals, talking a little bit about Darko Ryakovich, the the new Toronto Raptors head coach, um, who I mentioned just because uh, as a programming note, we will be taking you to that introductory press conference uh, live today. So that's expected to take place around 1 o'clock. So Jays Talk Plus is with you until noon, as usual. Uh, At that point, the Jeff Merrick Show comes on uh, at noon. That will be uh, on the network and on 360 through the conclusion of the Jeff Merrick Show, as you'd normally expect. About at 1 o'clock on the 590 side, we'll take it over to that introductory press conference. Ben Ennis doing extended fan drive time around that introductory press conference. So you can, uh, if you are a Raptors fan as well, you can hear and get to know Darko Rayakovich around 1 o'clock today. The Toronto Blue Jays did not play, which means all the stuff we said yesterday is still the same. We've just had a little longer uh, to ruminate in it. It was a fun night around baseball in general. Uh, another tremendous Shohei Otani night, which is uh, always a blast. And hey, if you uh, if you want to feel a kinship with Shohei Otani as he does all of these very cool things, uh, he bat flipped against the Texas Rangers. He probably doesn't like them either. As my pal Juice Fair Service pointed out, uh, he's he's fr- a friend of the Blue Jays because he was happy to. Uh, bat flip one of his two home runs against the Texas Rangers Uh, the Texas Rangers who the Jays will see this weekend the Orioles were also off yesterday that allowed both of these teams the opportunity to reset the rotations if they wanted we didn't know who those teams were going to throw as of this show yesterday so quickly we'll run it run you through it Uh, today will be Chris Bassett against Dean Kramer the Toronto Blue Jays have decided to issue the extra day of rest that the off day yesterday would have provided and just stay on turn. So it's going to go Bassett, Barrios, Kikuchi. Um, they haven't confirmed their Friday starter, but with all likelihood, it will be Kevin Gosman Friday. And then that bullpen day we've been talking about would be Saturday. That's a tough one at the Texas Rangers, given what they've done offensively this year. But by having, by structuring the rotation so that that bullpen day comes Saturday, you get through this nine game road trip with an off day on either side, uh, only needing the bullpen day once instead of twice. So I think that was the smart way to do it. Uh, however you want to manage things, preferable to only have one of those instead of multiple. It also gives you the benefit of, again, if Kevin Gosman starts Friday as expected, the Yusei Kikuchi day and the bullpen day are separated by Kevin Gosman. Uh, Gosman this last time through, didn't give the bullpen that that reprieve that he had been a certainty to give them for most of the year. I think he'll be back to that version of Kevin Gosman. So you have Kikuchi, who they've only really been letting go five innings, even, even when he's pretty sharp. And then you have Gosman to eat innings in between. And then you have the bullpen day rolling into Bassett Barrios. So uh, Bassett Barrios, Kikuchi against Dean Kramer, Kyle Bradish, Tyler Wells. Tyler Wells, you maybe haven't seen uh, a ton of just yet, but... Boy, Dean Kramer and Kyle Bradish, it feels like they've pitched against the Toronto Blue Jays a combined 400 times over the last season and a half. So we'll uh, we'll set some of that series up throughout the day, but it really does feel like even with the more balanced schedule, the Jays have seen just a lot of the Baltimore Orioles, and it's a Baltimore Orioles team that hasn't really cooled off. They are uh, they continue to cook, 41 and 24. Um, to help us get ready for that 
series. We have a couple guests throughout the show. Uh, we'll talk to Ben Nicholson-Smith. At 11 o'clock, he's down in Baltimore. Uh, former Toronto Blue Jay, Jesse Litch, is going to join us for the last segment of the show. Around 10.35, we'll be joined by Steve Slykowski, guitarist in Pop the Band. Uh, huge, huge baseball nerd. Uh, also Pup playing Budweiser stage on Friday with Lex on Fire. So we'll, we'll tell you a little bit about that. Um, we were giving away tickets on the show not that long ago. Hope you were able to get some. Uh, right now, though, we're going to be joined by Sportsnet producer Chris Black. You know his Twitter threads, at Down to Black, his video breakdowns. Uh, but today, we have to start... Chris Black with a basketball question. Jamal Murray is an NBA champion. It's another Canadian entering that hall. And there's been some friendly debate about whether this marks the greatest Canadian playoff run or, or if the 0405 and 0506 Steve Nash seasons leading the zombified versions of the Suns to the Western Conference Finals two years in a row uh, is more impressive perhaps since he didn't have uh, a Jokic how are you feeling about Jamal Murray, NBA champion? I'm feeling awesome as a Canadian basketball fan. Um, very cool. Um, personally, and this is totally just a personal preference thing, I'm a Nash guy. Um, I thought he drove that bus a little bit more. Um, but, you know, it, to me, that's it's trivial. But, yeah. I mean, that's what we talk about are trivial <laughs> things. But, um it's awesome. And we were, it was kind of on in the background when we were grabbing dinner last night here in Baltimore. And to be honest, where my mind went and we started talking about it a little bit is yes, it's the NBA, NBA finals, NBA title, but I just got excited again about world championships and where Canada basketball could go. Oh, did you happen to be out us- for dinner with Dan Shulman? Cause uh, I know maybe, that's maybe. where, that's where his mind goes every single time. <laughs> Yeah, I just, uh, I, you can't help but be excited and think about the possibilities and where these things could go. Um, so NBA Finals, awesome. But now I'm like, my 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 gaze has already turned towards the late summer, early fall. So I will say this without talking out of turn. I know that a lot of the time we assume that if a guy makes an NBA championship run, that puts his uh, his status in question to questionable to doubtful for offseason international ball. I don't know that that's the case for Jamal Murray. He's a guy who has really wanted to play for Canada at that level. And I know, you know, there's going to be some some exit physicals to see just where his surgically repaired knee is after missing the last two postseasons, and he won't push it that much, but I would bet Nikola Jokic is going to want to suit up for the world cup. Um, and I would bet that Jamal Murray, maybe not bet bet is a little strong. I don't think it's completely out of the realm of possibility that Jamal Murray uh, says, Hey, uh, I feel good enough. Let me skip a big chunk of the training camp in early August, but I'll see you in Jakarta and and let's uh, let's make some noise as Canada basketball. So I don't know. Put that in your back pocket, Chris. I'm just dreaming of an SGA Murray backcourt. If it could happen, if, if it could happen, it would be amazing. It's ridiculous. It's uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander, who just became the first player, the first Canadian since Steve Nash, and the only Canadian other than Steve Nash to receive MVP votes and make All NBA uh, first team. And Jamal Murray coming off of arguably uh, the best playoff run of any Canadian ever. And they did that stuff in the same season. Could be a lot of fun. Uh, could also be a lot of fun if the Toronto Blue Jays take I don't know six out of nine on this nine game road trip where they'll play at three at Baltimore, three at Texas, 
three at Miami. Chris, we've had the rare off day yesterday. You're down in Baltimore. Um, that was only the second off day in the last 32 days. As you kind of reset with where the Jays are right now, what was front of mind for you kind of coming into today and coming into this Orioles series with the benefit of a breather? Six of nine would be, I think they would, I think they would take that. And yeah, I'm being greedy. Um, yeah, a little bit. To me, this is three teams that are playing very well. Um, to me, this is about making it through this stretch and then saying goodbye to this crazy stretch. If we were talking yesterday, like, I'd be ecstatic with five and four if I was on the team. Like, I, I think I think you take what you can get against this team. You might get Miami kind of slowing down. Um, but I just, yeah, to me, this has been a very long, uh, tough, stretch of baseball and i think yeah five and four six three you just don't want it to blow up and that that idea of one more you know one more bullpen day coming up on the weekend in all likelihood as you mentioned you know if you can make it through these one or two more times through the rotation and figure out where you are then i think i think that's a win i think they've handled it pretty well as you've talked about it dan's talked about it on air like they've handled this 30 game crazy stretch pretty well it's been kind of an up and down ride, but overall they've gotten through it. So yeah, to me, do what you can to, you know, keep your head above water, play 500 or slightly better or get greedy and win six of nine. But um, yeah, just get through it. So the way you mentioned, uh, you know, the bullpen days and, and managing that. So what they've done with the off day yesterday, um, the chance to restructure the rotation and they haven't 1000% confirmed their plans for Friday and Saturday, but the way it looks like it's going to line up is Bassett Barrios Kikuchi against the Orioles, Gosman bullpen day, and then back into the, the four rotation pieces for the second half of this road trip. The Jays then have off days on the 22nd and 26th. So you've got that three game series against the athletics, where you could ostensibly not need a bullpen day again for that series. Maybe it's a spot where you decide to do one anyway because it's the Oakland Athletics and it buys some of your guys an extra day of rest, but you don't have to do it. So then we're looking at after Saturday, if things go to plan, the next time they they absolutely have to use a fifth starter or a bullpen day would be July 1st. And then only one more before the All-Star break. Um, how are you feeling about the potential for, and, and I know Saturday... They, they, the game didn't go well. Adam Simber and Mitch White kind of blew up in the later innings, but I think the team would be pretty happy with how the first seven innings went. I think if you're looking at surviving a stretch with only four true starters, if you can, you know, get from, I don't know, Manoa went to the minors last Monday, last Tuesday. So that that's June 6th. You could get conceivably all the way out of the all-star break, um, really all the way until like July 18th, because they have an off day early out of the all-star break, conceivably only needing three more bullpen days. Do you think that that schedule relief and, and you look, we're, we're walking on eggshells here with this a little bit. Um, but do you think they could stomach managing it that way versus forcing someone into a fifth starter role? The other day, at some point on the weekend, I think it might have been on Sunday, Arden and the other uh, one of the other Jays producers, Doug Walton, put together a really nice graphic showing what essentially Richards and Francis combined to give you. And if they give you five innings and ten strikeouts or whatever it was, it was some number like that. Like you'll take that every time. So if yeah, Francis gives you three innings of good pitching every time, and if Richards continues being one of the, you know, craziest strikeout guys in the league right now, then yeah, you'll, you can make it through no problem. Um, you know, I think it can work 
there's, as you said, there's not these off days create an opportunity to, you know, they sent Manoa down at the, at a time of the year when it would affect them the least. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a uh, coincidence. Um, so I think they can make through it. I think the bullpen's been really good. Like, yeah, Simber and White were not good. And, you know, I, I do think it will be Francis one way or another. That's just a guess on my part. I think he'll find his way back up um, to pitch in these bullpen days. Now, whether it's one, two more, who knows? But, yeah, I, I think they can handle it. Um, they've I really like a lot of pieces in this bullpen right now, and I, I think for the most part – They've been everything that kind of we all thought they needed this year. Um, we've got a graphic for tonight's show showing that, you know, Orioles are number Orioles bullpen number one in strikeout rate in baseball, and the Blue Jays are tied for second. And I think that would probably surprise most fans at home, especially if you were to tell them kind of last year that, hey, we're going to have the second highest strikeout rate in baseball next year, they probably wouldn't have believed you for from the Jays' pen. So I think they've been really good, and I think they can make it through this stretch. Yeah, it's a, the strikeout rate is a big whiplash from, from last year, to be sure, when, you know, their bullpen ERA was really solid, but not a lot of swing and miss stuff. And, um, you know, outs are outs, but in big spots with runners on base, inherited runners, things like that, the value of being able to miss bats is pretty uh, pronounced. So you mentioned Bowden Francis, obviously looked good in his two and two thirds inning Saturday, you know, we can litigate the decision to take him out versus letting him go through a second time in the order. I kind of think with the the quality of contact he was giving up and, you know, I, I think it's justifiable, even if you, you don't necessarily agree with how they handled it um, for this Saturday though, he can only come back up if, if someone, hits the IL. Um, I know there's always the potential to phantom IL guys and things like that. And maybe, Hey, Mitch white, isn't just healthy enough yet or something like that. Um, but short of Bowden Francis, where is your confidence level in like the current version of this bullpen? And, and that's a Texas Rangers team. That is very good at the plate right now. Um, if say it's not Bowden Francis, let's say it's a, you know, Richards hatch Mesa trio or something like that. Um, your confidence level in, in this iteration of the pen with hatch and white instead of uh, Bowden Francis available. Yeah, I don't, the confidence level in, <laughs> in white certainly is not very high right now. I don't think anyone could logically have much confidence in how he's throwing. Um, you know, the other guys, I do think, as you said, it, you know, I'll, I'll steal a line from Shulman here and I'm paraphrasing probably, but he always has a line of that he uses on the broadcast of these things have a way of sorting themselves yes. out or working out. You know, I, I do think one way or another, we'll see Francis who knows what will happen, but, um, but yeah, the other guys, you know, I'm, this is, I was, I'm a baseball nerd. We know this. I really love the Trevor Richards changeup. Mm -hmm. I've liked what I've seen from the Thomas Hatch changeup. I, I think they're turning that into a weapon. Um, and there's something that it's percolating in my head a little bit. I don't have enough stuff to kind of put anything together on it yet, but it feels like the Jays as an organization and as a major league club seem to be fans of like developing, identifying pitchers and like using off speed, like changeups and splitters as a weapon. And you look at how they targeted Ryu, um, a couple of years ago, you look at how they targeted Gossman. You look at Richards. You look at this hatch changeup now. Like you look at Swanson, how they targeted in a trade. And the interesting correlation here to me is they've also been an incredibly they've also been an incredibly healthy 
they've also been an incredibly healthy uh, pitching staff. Mm-hmm. And is there a correlation there? Or if if you're not depending on kind of crazy high spin breaking balls, do you stay healthier? I don't know, but that's just a quick aside. But I'm I'm confident. I really like this staff, and I really like what Pearson's been for the last few weeks. I mean, obviously, but just really, really dominant stuff. I mean, Pearson's in a situation where had you told me a couple weeks ago that the Jays were doing bullpen days, I would have been like, oh yeah, Pearson is a big part of those. He can give you two, maybe even push him for a third inning if he's been efficient. And now it's like, okay, well, even if you'd love to use him Saturday, I'm not taking Pearson off of the table for Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday to set that up. He's too valuable uh, to the bullpen in that in that position right now, I think he'd probably be right after Romano and Swanson in terms of who you're most confident in in, in leverage spots. Um, with respect to Trevor Richards, though, and I will just say as an aside that uh, the changeup and potentially getting more out of it was also a Mitch White thinking because that was a changeup that he didn't use mm-hmm. a lot but had really nice shape to yep. it and good metrics and stuff. So uh, you win some, you lose some for right now. Uh, but Trevor Richards throws <laughs> that changeup 58% of the time. That's the most of any pitcher in baseball. Um, it's a it's significantly more than any starter throws it. I used this, this nugget yesterday. It is almost double the amount Marco Estrada threw his changeup. Even when Marco Estrada was like Mr. Changeup with the Toronto blue Jays. Um, I, I know you've loved Richards this year. I I've ha- I had no choice, but to come around on him, obviously uh, when it comes to potentially stretching him out though, he, he gave you three pretty efficient innings, um, three very good innings. Also, he had given you three very efficient innings prior this season as well. Saturday was the most he'd throw most pitches he'd thrown since 2020 back when he was still a starter. Um, what is your, like how much could you stomach extending Trevor Richards? And I'm not just thinking pitch count wise. I'm thinking second time through the order and he only throws two pitches and he doesn't throw one of them in the strike zone. He's obviously been very effective, but would you be concerned about letting him see guys a second time, even if he has a good first three innings say? Yeah, like I, I think that's a valid, perfectly valid question, and we just don't know. Um, you know, if we've seen, you know, the difference and this guy, it's not a perfect comparison because Richards doesn't throw 97, 98. But, um, you know, we've seen Gossman have success as a two-pitch starter, and you can do it. Um, and I do think Richards' changeup as it currently, you know, right now is literally almost as good as Kevin Gossman's splitter. Um, but yeah, yeah, like per personally, I wouldn't want to stretch. Like I wouldn't want to explore what he looks like as a fifth starter. I mm-hmm. wouldn't want to explore trying to go four or five innings with him. I think he's, he's great as he is. And I think he's an incredible weapon. Once you find out, you know, once you figure out a fifth starter, he's a great weapon and he deepens your bullpen and he's the exact kind of guy you want to get you six outs, seven outs, five outs. Like that's the kind of guy you want. I, I don't think it's worth, you know, ruining is too strong of a word, but potentially changing what's working right now to kind of be a stopgap in the rotation. So I like what he's doing now. I like if he can max give you three innings, that's that's wonderful. But yeah, I think it's a perfectly valid thing to wonder about what happens if you try to stretch him out more. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's probably where I land on it too is, yeah, let's let's keep a good thing a good thing. And if he was doing it, you know, Ross Stripling last year when he was going twice through the order, but he was throwing five different pitches, um, you could at least see how that might work over a third time through the order. This one's a little dicier. And it's not... 
you know, Manoa's not out for the season and, and things like that. There are potentially other solutions beyond just stretching Richards out. Uh, let's swing it to the hitter side. Boba Shed has cooled off a little bit. Uh, last 13 games, uh, 589 OPS. Some of that is just poor BABIP driven, but some of it is also, you know, he has 15 strikeouts over those 13 games. He, he hasn't taken a walk. Um, what are you seeing with Boba Shed? And, and is it a matter of, you know, obviously it's a matter of the give and take and you adjust and then pitchers adjust and then you counter adjust and things like that. Um, it almost seems like pitchers are meeting him at his level when it comes to uh, aggression, knowing he's going to um, be the aggressive version of Boba What are you seeing in, in Boba Not even, I won't even call it a slump, but just like, you know, a bit of a cool streak by his standards. Yeah. To me, it, it even stretches into when he was hitting well, um, he has one walk in his last 25 games. Uh, that's tied for the fewest he's ever had in a 25-game span. Um, to me, when you hear people who spoke to Bo, both late last year and early this year, the story he was telling is uh, he stopped worrying about swing decisions. He stopped worrying about being patient, and he just got back to being who he was, is what um, you'd hear people say. Um I don't think that was actually necessarily the case. Now, what he believes about what works for him doesn't really matter um, as long as it's working. But, you know, during his insane hot streaks, he was walking at about a league average rate and his chase rate went down compared to his poor stretches. And right now he's chasing a lot. He's chasing early in counts. He's chasing, he's chasing pretty much a, at all times, like back to, you know, as high as Bo gets and yes he's an aggressive hitter he's you know uh i'd put him as the second most talented hitter on the team um he's you know he's still racking up hits and again it's a blip and he's one of the two or three guys that we grade on a curve on this team so it's something to kind of you know he's still hitting he's still been their most productive hitter but yeah i think when the chase kind of goes down and he adjusts to what teams are doing, um, then the hits will come back. But I just think right now he's seeing a lot of kind of what we've saw kind of early last year, a lot of breaking balls away and seeing a field chase. And he he's biting right now. Well, he should not do that. He should get back to the guy who gets two hits every game. That was really fun. <laughs> um, another guy who pitchers are maybe adjusting to Matt Chapman was the, I'm not exaggerating here, the best hitter in baseball for the month of April. Uh, he had by far the highest weighted runs created plus, which tries to put everyone on the same kind of scale and adjusts for a number of factors. He was the best hitter in baseball. Since then, he's not been the best hitter in baseball. He went from being about, two and a half times as good as an average offensive player to uh, a below average offensive player. He's got a 66 WRC plus since the start of May um, in digging in. And I'm, I'm doing a little something pregame on, on Matt Chapman struggles for blue Jay central tonight, Chris. Um, I, I know you're, you're too big time for blue Jay central. You're, you're on the road producing the actual game. But uh, <laughs> one of the things that, uh, that I came across and I'm curious if you have any thoughts on it, or if you've dug in it on it yourself, is that a lot of Matt Chapman's, turnaround in the the negative direction have come on fastballs. He's gone. He's gone from being about a plus three run value guy against fastballs in April to about a minus three and a half run value guy. Um, so that's a, you know, that that's a pretty big swing in your effectiveness against fastballs. 
and that coincides with he's pulling the ball a little bit more. Do you see those things as being related, getting back to, you know, we know post-hip surgery, for example, Matt Chapman got a little bit too pull-heavy, and maybe that had something to do with, with bat speed or his comfort against fastballs. Um, what are you seeing in Matt Chapman's struggles specifically with respect to uh, handling the heater? Well, it's interesting because I think a lot of his success early in the year um, came off of off-speed pitches. He was demolishing change-ups, staying back on them very well. Um, and even if you look last series, he had two hits. One was a cutter off the wall for a double, and the home run he hit was a 2-2 slider. And I think the trade-off to that, to staying back on cutters, sliders, change-ups, the trade-off is sometimes you're going to be late on fastballs, and sometimes you're going to get beat on fastballs. And I think that's kind of what we've seen. And maybe sometimes um, you change your approach and you do try to pull a little bit more. But I, I do think some of this is approach-driven, and some of this is just, you know, for the first six years of his career, he was an 800 OPS guy, and that's kind of what he's working his way back towards. But like you take 800 OPS with the great defense, mm -hmm. you know, he's going to be an all-star this year. Um, the only real question to me around Chapman is as this bat slows down a bit, is it better for the team? And I don't know what you think. Is it better for the team to have someone else hitting consistently behind Guerrero. That's been something that's just kind of cropped up in my head over the last kind of week or two. Yeah, there's something that stuck with me. Um, if you remember the the game where early in the season where Vlad uh, walked it off and there was a question about why did you even pitch to him instead of intentionally walking him? And, and there was a there was some comment, and I, I want to say it was Aaron Boone, but I'm not a thousand percent sure I'm remembering right. But the comment was kind of, well, there's a good bat to ball guy behind him versus if you have a high strikeout guy behind him, maybe you're more inclined to uh, intentionally walk Vlad. I, I do wonder if even though Kirk hasn't been as good a hitter as Chapman so far this year, if Kirk in that spot maybe changes the way pitchers approach Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And maybe he gets a little bit more, um, a little bit more to, to deal with there. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know exactly um, how I feel about that just yet because the, the him sliding down in the order for the first time since early 2021 kind of caught me off guard. I, I didn't really expect it. And I'm still working through uh, some of the iterations with that. Where, where I, I know this could be affected a little bit by if Brandon belt is, is healthy enough to go or not. Um, but Vlad dropping into the four spot when belt is in the lineup. Um, do you like that? That little tweak? I, I'm not sure I do, um, just generally speaking. And who knows, With it, like it might have just been a short-term thing just to try something out, spark the lineup, who knows. But generally, and I, my guess would be that Vladdy's going to find himself in the top three for most of the games going forward. I, I just think generally you want Bo and Vladdy both guaranteed to come up in the first inning and both guaranteed to get as many plate appearances as possible. So I... Uh, you know, belt's been awesome. So there's nothing wrong with it. I'm just, I'm not sure long-term that that's going to be something you'll see going forward. But then again, if it works, uh, keep going with it. Yeah. Why not? Why not mix it up? Uh, last one for you before we let you get back to Baltimore here, Chris Bassett on the mound tonight, you have multiple children, Chris black is the new dad <laughs> is the new dad bump real? Because I know like the Fred Van Vliet of it all has maybe made it. It's kind of forced the narrative on everyone, but Chris Bassett looked pretty damn good with a kid on the way. And then with a, a new kid in the mix last time out, is, is there some sort of 
explanation we can reach you? Because I know you don't deal in the ethereal. You deal in, in what we can analyze. Uh, what are the, the numbers on, on the new dad bump? It's 100% legit. Like it's, and I like that it's not, we're not calling it dad strength. We're not, it's a boost. Like it's, and it's like a don't give an F meter. Like we all tend to take ourselves too seriously at work sometimes. I put myself in that category. And when you have a newborn at home, everything else becomes trivial between it's just newborn and your partner. That's all you're worried about. And you treat it that way. So you still care about work, you still have fun, you're still competitive, but all that stuff kind of frees you up to just don't give enough. And you somehow that makes you perform work, do anything a little bit better. So I, but also there is a bit of a dad strength. I've, <laughs> I hit the golf ball further than I ever have ever since the, the kids are around. Maybe I don't believe holding you. babies. Yeah, I know it's not true. I'm lying. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know about that. I, I, I'm not going to push you on it because I'm not a golfer, so I'm not really going to do the, well, prove it on the course thing. But uh, yeah, I will I will ask someone you've golfed with about how your golf game has progressed uh, rather than hear it from you uh, directly. Chris Black, enjoy Baltimore, man. Uh, produce the heck out of this series. Um, yeah, man, enjoy yourself. Be well. Have a good day, Blake. Chris Black. Sportsnet producer, he'll be producing the games from down in Baltimore. Of course, those will be uh, on Sportsnet Television for you. 7 o'clock tonight, 7 o'clock tomorrow, and 1 o'clock on Thursday. Uh, programming note, I will be on the radio call for those games alongside Ben Shulman. If you would like to hear even more of me today, which is uh, borderline impossible. Um, we're going to take a break. Oh, actually, one piece of news before we take a break. If you are a hockey fan at all, uh, the Ottawa Senators have been sold. Um, so they uh, that is news, and the Jeff Merrick Show will be on uh, at 12 o'clock across the network and on Sportsnet 360. I'm sure they'll have lots uh, related to the Ottawa Senators having new ownership. So keep a, an ear out for that around 12 o'clock. Uh, and again, I mentioned it off the top, but 1 o'clock on the Sportsnet 590 side, uh, we will be bringing you the introductory press conference for new Raptors head coach, Darko Ryakovich. Um, ben Ennis will be kind of walking you you through that and reacting out of it while Jeff Merrick's show continues uh, across the, the network and on Sportsnet 360. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to go to the polar opposite of talking to Chris Black in terms of, uh, you know, analysis and just general... <laughs> reasonableness. Uh, we're going to talk to Steve Zodkowski, the guitarist in Pop the Band, a huge baseball fan, big show for them this week. Uh, Steve Zodkowski joins us next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on Sports at 590, The Fan, and Sports at 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That is a newly released song from Pop the Band, Toronto's finest punk band. That song's called How to Live With Yourself. It was one of three tracks they dropped last Wednesday as a B-side to their 2022 album, The Unraveling of Pop the Band. Maybe you saw me in one of their music videos. I don't know. How do you come about deciding what tracks make the track list and what tracks are the B-side? I talked the other day during a mailbag segment about how I personally believe in the batting order theory of track sequencing, where you want to structure an album similar to how you'd structure a batting order. And obviously the top four or five tracks are kind of the most important and it flows from there. Now, I realize with, uh, you know, in eras where 
actual physical records were a bigger thing. You need a, a better balance between the two sides. Um, and then if you go back even further, you really were only releasing like two or four tracks on an album. Um, so there's, there are some flaws to this, but I am curious um, how exactly you, you come about deciding uh, the track order and, and which tracks don't get cut. Because if you subscribe to the batting order theory of track sequencing on an album, the songs that don't make the album then are your bench pieces, especially if you're pocketing them uh, for B-sides later. We're going to ask our next guest about that. But first, Steve Sladkowski, guitarist and pup the band, fresh off a European tour. How you doing, man? Have you caught up yet? And are you still aglow in the Nikola Jokic of it all? Uh, yeah, I mean, the easiest way to uh, to get over jet lag is to uh, to watch Slavic Excellence late at night. Um, I'm, I'm well, man. How are you? I'm good. It's, uh, it's a busy one here with, uh, speaking of Slavic excellence, Darko Rayakovich will be announced as the next coach of the Toronto Raptors, uh, around one o'clock today. So, um, man, what a, what a wave for your people right now. <laughs> it's, it's been good. Uh, it was nice to see Nikola Jokic, uh, shout out the new coach as well. And, uh, uh yeah, you know, uh, unfortunately we, we didn't get to Eastern Europe on this, uh, on this <laughs> last European run, but, uh, but it's okay. You know, we, we know that, uh, that that the Serbians are holding it down right now. So lots going on for, for you guys in Pop the Band right now. I played How to Live with Yourself on the way into this segment while we were connecting with you. Uh, one of the three tracks you guys dropped last week as a B-side to the unraveling of Pop the Band. And, you know, not to go too inside baseball with the music side, and I'm going somewhere baseball related with this, but how, like knowing you guys Personally, I, I have an idea of how you guys figure out which tracks make the album and which tracks don't. But let, let's talk about it more professionally. Like, let's pretend you guys are professionals. Um, how how do you decide what makes it and what's get what gets pocketed for a B side later? Yeah, I think I think the big thing is like you know you need you need it to flow. You want it to have sort of a representation of of kind of all the different places that you were exploring kind of when you're, when you're writing the record. So, you know, I think, I think, uh, I think we were able to accomplish that with the, uh, with the track list for the, for the unraveling the way it was. Uh, but, you know, I think the, the thing is, is like, you always want to have more material. Like if you're putting it in the, in the baseball sense, right. You always want, you want that bench uh, to be pretty deep. Um, and uh, with this record, we were pretty lucky in that we were kind of, we obviously had a pandemic's worth of time to, to be writing uh, all the songs. And so, you know, we were pretty proud of all of them. And, and so it made it a lot harder to kind of decide which ones to cut. Um, but the flip side of that is that, you know, uh, here we are sort of a year and a bit past uh, the release of the album and we still have music to put out from it. Um, and, and songs that we're proud of. So, so it's been nice to be able to kind of share that. So I, I know the track listing was not nine and it's not a four player B side. Uh, it doesn't line up perfectly with how the, the position player side of a roster is constructed. However, you do have uh, three songs on this B side. So let's say Nathan Lucas just didn't even make the cut for the B side. He, he's the one that's <laughs> thrown out. Uh, which of these three tracks, so there's how to live with yourself, there's smoke screen, there's kill something. Uh, which of the three of these is Cabin Biggio for you right now? Biggio coming off of a, a very big weekend and a run of having some some pretty big moments of late, even though the overall, you know, maybe he isn't a make-the-main-album quality player right now, but he's had some pretty big moments. Yeah, I think uh, I think probably that would be, 
that would be a, would be a smokescreen only because it felt like uh, not only was it one of the first songs we wrote for the record, but it felt like one of the ones that kind of like there was a bit of a breakthrough there. There was a bit of a like realizing that there was something going on with that um, that felt different, that felt maybe like uh, like it, it was a, a step forward and a step in a direction that was kind of new and and uh, surprising, which, you know, maybe maybe. Uh, some of some of us are a little surprised with how Kevin Biggio has been playing the last little bit. I, I I'll be honest with you, I, I haven't. I've only kind of watched recaps and been, been following box scores because it's hard to stay up late uh, over in Europe. But um, yeah, you know there was some uh, there was some like uh, some like electronic drums and electronic elements that we haven't really um, kind of messed with before, and uh, and some sort of like like like. Uh, uh, like almost a uh like more kind of uh like like slow well, I'm I'm lost for words here uh sort of like um just like fuzzier kind of like slower you know a lot of the music that we write and I think like how to live with yourself is a good example it's sort of that up tempo and kind of like like very kind of like uh uh high energy um and this was just sort of a a bit of a a kind of slower kind of fuzzier sort of um sort of thing that we just hadn't really done a ton with before so so that feels like kind of the 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 big sort of punch off the bench that we need yeah lineup versatility stylistic versatility you know he plays a couple different positions it's good you can mix it and mix and match it with a lot of different uh track sequencings uh if you ever dust one of those off uh for a live show or something so you mentioned you you have been on the road in europe it's a little tough to keep up with watching each game you and i have talked a ton over the years about what it's like trying to keep up with the raptors while you're on the road do you find it a little easier to keep up with baseball while you're on the road because while it is every day you can get a little bit more of a sense of what's going on with a with a baseball club through you know box scores and reading articles and stuff like that on, on the fly and the jay's talk plus podcast obviously yeah of course uh, <laughs> um yeah it is and you know i think the other thing too is like uh in a way that is especially in the case say of, of like basketball um is in the playoffs um those start times are kind of like they're manufactured for uh, like like national TV broadcast, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're you're kind of like you know like in the, in the years that the Raptors have been in the playoffs, and I've been over in Europe, you know you're going to be up until three four in the morning, mm-hmm. just sort of as a as kind of a, a rule of thumb. But you know you get the occasional like afternoon midweek afternoon game. You can you can actually kind of tune in, um, and and yeah, it's easy to kind of just like follow along, um, and you know obviously. Uh, this is the curse of, of cheering for a team in the best division in baseball that it's, uh, it's just been as, as great as it feels to look at the Jays like win loss record and know, oh, okay, maybe there are a couple of starts there with Manoa that they could have won. Uh, you know, if someone else maybe had been pitching, whatever the case may be, uh, uh, it's it's uh, it's a nightmare out there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough one, man. It, it is yeah. a tough go in the American League East, and, and even a week like this where the Jays don't have, you know, they have one series against the American League East, and it's like, oh, by the way, your reprieve from the American League East is uh, the best team in the American League West, and maybe the best team in the in the NL East uh, as well. So no rest for the weary, uh, Steve. With the caveat that yes, you you've been doing some following along via box score, via podcast, Twitter, and stuff like that. So maybe not dialed into every single game, but what is your hottest take? Do you think about this blue Jays team right now? Like what is your strongest held opinion uh, about this group player wise or, you know, what they need to add wise. It's kind of your choice where you want to go with that one. 
I mean, I think, uh, I think, you know, depth probably in the bullpen is going to be a thing that, uh, as, uh, is kind of a, a truism for like modern, uh, the modern major league baseball team. Uh, you always want that. Um, there's uh, there are certain holes in the bullpen right now that I'm very glad uh, exist, hmm. uh, and 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 others that uh, you know uh, I think would just be be dealt with uh, in in time. Um, and I just I don't know, man. I think I really do think they're not out of it. Uh, I know that there has been skepticism among uh, friends of of mine and yours, and and but like it does just feel uh, pretty wide open. I mean, Tampa, but Tampa Bay might never lose again, you know, who knows, but like, but I do think like something, it feels like something crazy is going to happen in the division that just hasn't happened yet. Uh, whether that's the Jays making a run and, and getting hot, it feels like, you know, it's, it started to turn a corner a little bit just in terms of like day to day, uh, uh, like offense, um, but uh, you know, yeah, I, I just think I, I just don't think I still think they're going to make the playoffs. I don't know if that's delusional or not. But no, I really not do. at all. I, like they're only a spot out of it right now. They're they're in kind of good shape, and especially you know we're we're conditioned to believe. No, no offense to our our pal Riley Breckenridge, we're conditioned to believe that the Angels will eventually uh, trip over themselves and fall out of this playoff race, which will make it a uh, a little thinner there. Uh, as well, I, I wonder, Steve, like from a fan perspective, from a, a confidence in what this team can do big picture, how how much would your confidence or, or your feeling of, of this team change if you saw a hot streak from Vladimir Guerrero Jr.? Because he's obviously been solid. There, there's no version of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. that is a bad hitter. But this is kind of the second year in a row where instead of hitting like a star, he's hitting like a really solid first baseman. How much would a Vlad heater up your confidence level in this group? I mean, I spoke to Spin Magazine at the beginning of, of the season for a preview um, which we do every year, which is a really fun one, uh, where they take, you know, a bunch of different people in, in the music world and just 113 uh, like, of you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, I think my, my whole thing was, uh, Vlad is sort of the key to this year, which felt, uh, you know, obviously with, uh, with adding some pitching and adding some, uh, you know, some, some like attempts at kind of, uh, kind of depth, it didn't feel like Vlad was going to be the important, um, X factor, but I, I really do think that the team will go the way he goes, you know, and I think um, if he regains some of that form, I mean, I think the other thing too is like, I always err on the, on the side of like, he's still so young that like we forget, I think we forget that like, you know, he, he, he is working uh, harder than I think maybe he's ever worked just in terms of, that preparedness on field and, and, and really becoming kind of like a defensive, like, like his growth at the position of first base has mm -hmm. been amazing to watch. And I think maybe that is the kind of thing that, because we're so used to the bat uh, from that, that, that one season where he finished behind Shohei, like uh, in MVP voting, like we're, we're so used to, to that idea of Vlad because it's been the one that's been talked about for so long that, that, it's hard to see the other improvements and, and kind of counter adjustments that he's making. But yeah, I mean, Hey, he, he's, he's supposed to be your best hitter and you want your best hitter to hit like, uh, you're going to pay him the amount of money that he's going to get paid. You know, I yeah. think that's the thing.
Yeah. Um, all right. So I, I got a couple quicker ones for you. Um, so you and I have watched, a, this is very good Blue Jays baseball, and we're able to nitpick at things like, oh, your first baseman is only 25% better than league average at the plate instead of 50% better. Uh, we have been through some lean years with this team as well, though. We've got Jesse Litch on the show a little later. He was with this team 2007 to 2011. That's an era where, you know, I mean, you guys are going to play Bud's stage on, on Friday with Alexis on fire, and you will be playing to more people than we're coming out to most of those uh, <laughs> Toronto Blue Jay games. Uh, I'm curious, like, when you think back to the lesser eras of Toronto Blue Jays baseball that you've come up on, is there a team or a player from that era that feels like, ah, oh, that's my guy. Like we've talked to uh, our friend, Andrew Zuber about his connection to Travis Snyder. Uh, I geek out. still every time I have Ricky Romero on this show, is there a guy uh, or a version of that, of that team that stands out as like, nah, that was mine. That was Steve's version of the blue Jays. Uh, oh man. I mean, Aaron Hill, I think is a big one. Okay. Um, but, but the one that I always just like, for whatever reason, and I'm not sure that it was even like a, I, I was like a huge fan. Obviously, Halliday, you know, uh, looms large in any discussion of the Jays from that from that era. But like, uh, I just keep the name that keeps coming up is Josh Towers for me. <laughs> also, a former guest of, of Jays Talk Plus. So, jo- Josh Towers, I think, I, I think R. A. Dickey might have broken this at one point. But I swear, if I had kept track of every baseball game that I've gone to over my entire life. I have still to this day seen more Josh Towers starts than any other pitcher. I think it, it did. Did you not get the feeling from like, I don't know, Oh four to Oh seven when like high school, you or coming back from, from university on the weekend, you was just like, every time you went, it was Josh Towers on the Hill. Yeah, it did seem like that. He seemed like one of the only guys who sort of was in the, in the rotation, like consistently other than Halliday at, at, at some point, you know, but I mean, like I was thinking about it, like, uh, you know, I think there are a lot of pitchers there that just like just the way like uh, the 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 roster churn was such in that time like Gustavo Chassin and his <laughs> like and his like Cologne you know there was all kinds of like weird weird stuff that they that 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 uh, they tried to make stick and and I guess with in terms of Cologne it literally stuck to you but like mm-hmm. uh, um, yeah you know I, I think like. What, were you a Troy Gloss guy or a Scott Rowland guy? Mm. You know, I don't know. I don't know. That was like a big thing there for a while. Um, uh, I'm trying to think like, sheesh. Uh, I mean, look, it, you, you could say you talked yourself into, into Brandon Morrow a few times. You, you, you debated I with did. yourself about whether Brett Cecil would be best off in the rotation or, or the bullpen. You, you've yeah. been through it. It's okay. It's, uh, it was the, the Dustin McGowan, uh, uh, you know, the, the bid for the perfect game. Uh, I was at that yeah. one with a friend who didn't watch baseball and like trying to, trying to do the explain why this is important without jinxing it was, uh, yeah. was quite the dance. Um, all right, Steve. So I, I joked about the, the low Jays crowd in that era, but you are going to play to one of the biggest crowds you've ever played to on Friday. Pup are playing with Alexis on fire and Mets at Budweiser stage. Uh, we gave tickets away a couple weeks ago on this show. You can go to ticketmaster.ca. Uh, if you're still looking to get yours, it's almost sold out as I understand it um, for you guys in pop, Steven, we'll get a little more earnest with this instead of, instead of goofing around, but you guys are playing not only in support of Alexis on fire, who you guys have played with before and, and obviously have done a lot for, the scene in kind of your style of music in this city. Um, but to be able to play your hometown crowd and that larger crowd, how much, how excited are you for Friday? How much is that going to mean to you guys? 
It's crazy. Um, yeah, I think it's the sort of thing that uh, when you, you know, you start your band uh, in in someone's parents' basement or whatever, when you're in your teens, uh, or maybe you're a little bit older or the parents are cool so you can drink beer, <laughs> uh, 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 maybe your ID is uh, the age that you say you are, or maybe it isn't. But, uh, you know, you, you think about this sort of stuff um, as kind of a, a like pie in the sky you know this is this is where i went and saw my first like real rock concert when i was like 14 or 15 um uh and to think that like you know the last time i was there it was it was uh, about a year ago to see uh, to see the chicks you know it was like I, it's one of those things where you're like oh the uh, real bands play here not my band um but i think that's sort of the you know it becomes uh it becomes a pipe dream until it isn't. And that's been sort of the, the kind of defining um, mindset of, of the band is that we've been kind of always wanting to do things that sounded cool and, and would be fun for us to do. And, um, you know, some of that means coming home in the middle of a European tour to play uh, with a band that uh, kicked open a door uh, for bands like yours. Um, and you know, it's been, it's been pretty surreal to get to know the guys from Alexis just as like friends, uh, over the past couple of years. And, and obviously as soon as they came to us with, uh, with this offer and, and, you know, we've known Mets for, for quite a long time too. Um, I live around the corner from, from Chris, the bass player. And, uh, you know, it's just like, it feels like a really cool kind of, uh, fun, just sort of, uh, uh, getting together of friends it just happens to be at a place where you know i think 16 or 17,000 people could also hang out yeah that's a 16,000 17,000 friends that's uh, that's yeah. all um no it's great it's going to be a nice uh, it's going to be a cool celebration of you know the the punk music scene or, or whatever you you want to classify yourselves and Alexis and Mets as in the city i think friday will be a blast the only thing left for you guys to do after that is we got to get you thrown the we got to we got to bug Alicon we got to bug who we got to bug to get you guys thrown out the first pitch at one of these games yeah. sometime soon i'm going to be that'll 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 scare me but i'll i'll do my best you know yeah i know you were a first baseman because the the arm was lacking so i That's i know right. how it goes uh steve <laughs> slodkowski of pop the band thanks so much for taking the time out this morning man thanks man Steve Slotkowski, guitarist in Pup the Band. Again, Pup playing with Alexis on Fire and Mets this Friday at Budweiser Stage. If you didn't win tickets with us, uh, you can check out Ticketmaster.ca. Uh, for more on that, I don't think there are very many left, so you should uh, get on that. Pup also with three new tracks out that you can find wherever you get your music. Maybe off of that conversation, we should have someone from Alexis on Fire on the show tomorrow. We'll see. I don't know. I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk to Ben Nicholson-Smith of sportsnet.ca, and later in that hour, we'll be joined by one of the names Steve and I just kicked around as, hey, a starter of that era. Let's remember some guys. Uh, Jesse Litch, who's now uh, a manager and a pitching coach in the MLB Draft League, a big part of expanding the game of baseball globally as well. So Ben Nicholson-Smith is next. Jesse Litch, a little, little later in the hour as Jay's Talk Plus continues on Sports. 590 and sports at 360 breaking down the top stories in hockey and elliot friedman every day the jeff merrick show subscribe and download the show on apple spotify or wherever you get your podcasts welcome back to jay's talk plus 
I'm Blake Murphy. Toronto Blue Jays back in action tonight. Chris Bassett against Dean Kramer. We were just talking to Steve Sikowski of Pop about how it feels like we had both watched Josh Towers about a billion times during the Josh Towers era. It felt like every time he went to the park, he was starting. That's how I feel about Dean Kramer and Kyle Bradish, who will start these next two games for the Baltimore Orioles. I know the schedule is more balanced now. I know that the Blue Jays didn't actually face them 10 times each last year, but I feel like I know more about Dean Kramer and Kyle Bradish than I really need to know or, or should know about any opposing starting pitcher. Someone who knows even more about them and, and all things baseball. Ben Nicholson Smith, MLB editor at sportsnet.ca joins us now from down in Baltimore. Ben, how you doing? Uh, doing well, Blake. And I don't know. I mean, I'm happy to see the Kramer and Bradish uh, title to you. I mean, it, it seems like uh, you've definitely locked in on those two names for a while now. Unfortunately, it's it's uh, it really is unfortunate that I have pages of notes and I'm I'm on the call th- this week with, with Ben Schulman. And, and, you know, the level of prep that goes into that. So I know, you know, what Dean Kramer a- a- eats for breakfast on, on his start day and stuff like that. It's uh, it's too much. It's too much. And, and the Baltimore Orioles feel like too much. It feels like they We're not supposed to be this good just yet. When they went into the rebuild mode, when they built up the best farm system in baseball, they are 41 and 24. They sit in second in the American League East. And Ben, if anyone thought last year was just kind of, you know, it was sort of the, to use a Pat Rileyism, the innocent climb where there aren't expectations. And how do you actually respond when there's something on the line and something's expected of you? They have met every successive goal on this growth path, it's all happened way quicker than, than I think any of us expected. How much has the rise of the Baltimore Orioles shifted things in, in terms of this Toronto Blue Jays competitive window? It, it definitely puts the pressure on because this is a really good team. And I think the the really interesting thing about Baltimore is they have so much in the way of growth ahead of them still. If you look at, obviously, their young players, Gunnar Henderson now just coming into his own um, in the last like week or two, Adley Rushman's been incredible ever since he got to the major leagues. And of course, it goes much deeper than that into the minor leagues where you have all kinds of prospects coming up, guys like Jordan Westberg and, and of course, Jackson Holiday pushing their way up. So they are going to get better because of the talent they have in their system, a group of prospects that really exceeds what the Blue Jays have to offer at this point. And again, that's understandable. The Orioles tanked. They lost on purpose to get to this point and now they're reaping some of the benefits of that but it goes beyond the prospects because now the Orioles can do a lot of things in trades the Orioles also haven't spent a lot so you know if they get to the point that their ownership okay some spending they can start getting really interesting so a lot of work to do I think for the present moment you know the Blue Jays are every bit as good as the Orioles I think they are a better team than the Orioles but they're probably both competing for wildcard spots just because of how good the Rays are. And the byproduct of that, the byproduct of the American League East and the American League in general being as tough as they are is that already here in June, we get Ben Nicholson-Smith trade speculation articles and no no names or, or rumors or anything just like that but you did have a really good Blue Jays notebook uh, go up over the weekend that that kind of set the stage for hey what might trade talks look like over the next seven weeks heading into the trade deadline um, we can get into the some of the specifics of your notebook but you as a, a baseball analyst like are, are you you getting kind of excited that it's this time of year 
Yeah, of course. I think it's uh, it's always fun. I mean, you know, Blake, that I'm happy to talk trades like literally <laughs> any time of year. It could be like the second week in spring training and I'm ready to talk trades. Um, you, you can take Ben Nicholson-Smith <laughs> off of MLBTradeRumors.com, but you can't take the MLBTradeRumors.com out of Ben Nicholson-Smith is what you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. That is that is well put. And so, you know, it, it is a fun time of year um, to kind of speculate about those things. And and realistically, MLB front offices have been looking at this stuff in a pretty intensive way for weeks and weeks now. So they know what they'd like to do. Now, the Jays, you know, for example, they're trying to add a starting pitcher right now. That's not easy to do. Of course, we know that they have an opening the next time the Alec Manoa spot would come up ideal world you probably have someone who can give you five solid innings um but it's just it's tough to pull those deals off at this point because anyone with anything useful to trade is going to want a lot as they should so you know with respect to where the blue jays go pitching is obvious every contender always needs pitching but you know the the point that i made in the article is really that they also need a bat I just think this Blue Jays team has a lot of guys who are producing, who are in their 30s. They're getting older. Brandon Belt's hamstring injury, just a perfect example. Kevin Kiermaier with the wrist, right? These guys are producing. They've been great free agent acquisitions. But how sure are we that they are going to play 80 or 90 games the rest of the way? And if you're really you know, honest with yourself, I think you have to admit that there is not a lot of certainty there, which means they need to go out and get another bat. So it's not Nathan Lucas up there with a the big, moment um and and he's the one hitting yeah nathan lucas someone you're willing to play more than uh, one plate appearance for every five days of time on, on the major league roster on average uh so far this year i guess my counter to that though ben and obviously they're in a win now window they're, they're paying into the luxury tax we we anticipate they have one of the highest payrolls in baseball so maybe you can't think quite this way but part of the reason that you know, the depth has looked as, as iffy as it is. A, a guy like Nathan Lucas and before him, Ernie Clement are on this roster are that the system, at least at the highest levels, isn't super deep right now. And that's more true on the pitching side than it is on the hitter side. But let's, you know, let's play out a scenario where a Matt Chapman or someone like that was injured. Um, you know, it's probably Santiago Espinal and Kevin Biggio filling in, not an Addison Barger, not an Arevis Martinez just yet. Um, as we approach trade season over these next six, seven weeks, what do you think this front office's willingness to continue to deal from a prospect pool that's that's pretty deep in the lower level of the minors, but doesn't have a ton of that quick to the majors. It doesn't have a ton of those names right now. It doesn't feel like. Um, what is their willingness going to be to to pull from a farm system that that you know leans to the thinner side right now? Well, it's it's a tricky situation, mm-hmm. and I think that it's it's going to be really interesting to watch because the willingness is going to be there. I mean, this is a team that is made to win now um they are for the most part competing and, and winning and they have a chance to make it to the playoffs and of course at that point who knows so this is not the time to ease up and say you know we're, we're just gonna stop you know we're gonna stop on our tracks and and not make further upgrades so they will make upgrades they will trade away prospects of some description now i don't s- see them just throwing around the few interesting upper level prospects that they have, you know, especially because Berger and Tiedemann are interested are, are, are injured right now. So cross them off. Then Arelvis, I, I don't see that happening right now. That's speculation, but I, I don't see that happening. And so you're probably looking at kind of lower level uh, long shot types. And realistically, 
that might be the kind of move where you're you're adding, let's say, this year's equivalent of a Whit Merrifield, someone who's underperforming, for example, and you know you trade away um, a more marginal prospect to to acquire him along the lines of a Max Castillo, like they did last year. So you know, I, I just don't see them being able to rush the market and accelerate the market and do big things on their terms, I think it's more likely they have to wait until the end of July because at that point, finally, the sellers face some pressure because that's their only chance to actually sell. And then the leverage flips back to the Jays a little bit. I'd also imagine we'll we'll have a more clear definition of who should be a seller by then. I, I joked earlier in the program about, oh, the Angels will fall off. Even if they don't, you know, one of those four teams in the AL West probably comes a little bit back down to earth. The Red Sox have started drifting off. Um, at some point, someone in the AL Central might win some games, and then that could push the other teams there into seller mode as well. Um, the only thing that, I, that I'll say back to what you said there, and it was you know, it was very well said. It's just a little bit of Samad Taylor erasure. He's, he's got 30 stolen bases in 59 games for uh, the triple a Kansas city Royals uh, affiliate. So um, don't think the blue Jays will be kicking themselves for that one because Castillo has been what we expected. And Samad Taylor is maybe, you know, an org depth outfielder. Uh, but yeah, that, that kind of strikes me as the type of thing that they're going to be doing. And those are the price tags for Whit Mayerfield types and for bullpen types. Um, again, this is too probably too early for this. And Chris Black and I laid out earlier in the program how the Jays can at least manage through the all-star break with a four-man rotation and some bullpen days if they really want to, given the off days they have and the all-star break up ahead. Um, but Ben, you'd have to think if they do address the starting pitching at some point, that is going to require one of the the bigger names or... or more certain names from the system, right? If you're getting anyone who has a chance to last in the starting rotation, for sure. Right. Yeah, like I we, we've got to think higher yeah. than a Mitch white 2022 here. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and yeah, you know, and that you costs you Nick Frazzo. Sorry. Yeah. That's, that's not a great trade. I mean, that's yeah, Nick, that's, that's just not the point. Now you look at the way Merrifield trade. That is a really good trade because for a guy that you kind of gave up some org guys for, He's got a 112 OPS plus. He's stealing bases. He's providing tons of versatility. That's a great pickup. So, you know, you hit and you miss with those. Um, but yeah, it's for your point about the starting pitching right now. I just think it's going to be really tough. Like they're they're just, you know, let's say it's an Eduardo Rodriguez who's the guy who would be impact. Well, the Tigers are going to want, as they should, like an actual good prospect for him. And I, I just, you know, like they might, their ask might be a Elvis Martinez right now or more. Um, for Eduardo Rodriguez. And I, I mean, that's pretty reasonable actually on their part because there's just not a lot out there. So I, I think that, you know, realistically, the Jays are going to have to get it done with replacement level guys off the waiver wire, um, you know, and and their own internal solutions. And so that probably does mean um, some days where things aren't looking too good for that number five spot in the rotation. Yeah, well, so, you know, we'll, we'll turn the page here to, to more immediate solutions and more immediate strategies because the trade deadline is a couple weeks away still, more than a month away. But Ben, you and I have talked about before that I, I like to start these discussions early because I, I think it's even though the market isn't set yet and it might cost you, you know, the price points might be a little different right now. This idea that you can't make trades until right before the trade deadline drives me nuts. You can always improve uh, your team. One way the, the Blue Jays could improve this team over the next little bit is getting Danny Jansen back. It sounds like you're in Baltimore. I don't know. I, I, I'm assuming you haven't been to the park yet, but um, are we anticipating Danny Jansen back for this series? Yeah, definitely anticipating he'll be back. Um, he, 
uh, had a uh, really good rehab stint uh, with the AAA uh, Bisons this weekend, hit a home run, was able to get back in there. So that is the expectation. That is the plan for the Blue Jays, that he will be back. And at that point, you get to an interesting question, right? Do they Mm -hmm. keep rostering three catchers and keep Heinemann around? Or do you option Heinemann and maintain uh, your other position player depth with guys like Lucas? It is an interesting one. It's especially interesting because they really haven't used Lucas much, right? Like even with Kiermaier banged up, he got a start there. But um, there were earlier stretches where, you know, we had Whit Merrifield in left field and Kevin Biggio in right field. Or um, there was a game they won by, I think there was a game the other weekend they won by three runs. And in the bottom of the ninth with, with a small lead, they didn't use Nathan Lucas as a defensive replacement. So it's like, um, you know, what is the... What is the utility of that spot? The other side of it, though, and maybe this is dictated a little bit by Brandon Belt's um, hamstring health and whether he's feeling better today when he gets to the park. But Ben, one of the arguments to keep three catchers would be that that lets you get Kirk or Jansen in the DH spot a little bit more often, keep both of those bats in there. With how well Brandon Belt has hit lately, is that less of a consideration? At like we we still figure Springer's going to get the odd DH day, Vlad might get the odd DH day, but that has primarily, at least against right-handed pitchers, become a, a Belt no question in the lineup spot. Yeah, as it should. I mean, this is this is really what you hoped for when you signed Brandon Belt for nine million dollars. Um, and so, absolutely, if he's healthy, you want him in there. Now, the other wrinkle to this, of course, is the hamstring that he uh, pulled on Saturday. He said he was doing a little better on Sunday, but they didn't use him. Didn't appear to me that he was available on Sunday. So, this is the other thing: is you know, if Brandon Belt is not available then do you actually want to have some... That means Kevin Biggio is probably in the starting lineup. Um, and so do you want Nathan Lucas available to pinch run for uh, a Kirk, for example, or to pinch run for a Brandon Belt, for example? Um, so, uh, you know, there are a lot of different factors here um, to, to take a look at. Ideal world, Brandon Belt is healthy, and that opens some things up for you. So if Brandon Belt is healthy and, you know, that DH spot is more or less uh, accounted for m- more days than not, you, you'll still have Jansen or Kirk in there once in a while, I'm sure. But prior to Danny Jansen's injury, uh, if we look at, you know, the the little less than a month before he hit the IL, he had started 18 games and had 79 plate appearances over that stretch. Alejandro Kirk had started just 12 games over that stretch. And while he was used as a pinch hitter a little bit more, uh, still came in, you know, 18 plate appearances shy uh, of Danny Jansen. So um, that playing time split, even including Kirk's time at at DH, had nudged toward Danny Jansen to, you know, again, 18 starts to to 12 starts. and, And that's including the DH days. Danny Jansen has been a little bit snake bitten over the last couple of years where every time he starts hitting, it, it seems like he, he gets hurt a little bit. What is the path like for Danny Jansen to carve out, you know, back even back to a 50, 50 share of the catching role? Because Alejandro Kirk has been pretty solid in his absence. He has. And, you know, I looked at the numbers. I was curious about how Kirk had done with Jansen sidelined and Kirk hit 277, which, okay, great. And, and most important, I should say, most important of all, he was able to catch the ball. He was able to take on that load, um, you know, as far as the the toll physically um, that was demanded of him. So give him credit for that. And he was able to hit 277. But, you know, you look at it, it's pretty empty. And that's really the story of Kirk's season. He's still able to put the bat on the ball. He's still incredibly hard to strike out. But he is not hitting for a lot of power. And that continued when Jansen was out. So, you know, I, I think if Jansen 
you know, if he is able to tap into the power that we saw in 2022 and that we've seen even for stretches in 2023 on a team that is currently seeking that that home run swing, I think that creates a clear pathway for Jansen. And of course, it's going to be a timeshare between these guys. That is the way it's been drawn up since day one here. And I, I don't see any reason that that would change um, barring the unexpected here. But I, I think Jansen can nudge that in his favor if he can keep showing off that power. You mentioned Kirk's uh, 277 being a little empty, a little odd for him too, that in that, so that's a 15 game stretch, almost 50 plate appearances, only one walk during that stretch and four strikeouts is still like remarkably low um, in, in anything like that. Like that's a single digit strikeout rate. But yeah, when you're not, you're not drawing the walks on top of not having the power there, it's uh you know, I, I still think the the approach is great, and obviously, what he did behind the plate, like you said, uh, was very, very important to this team. But yeah, the the path to Jansen uh, having some playing time is probably on the power side. Um, one other potential trickle down of, of if Brandon Belt is banged up here a little bit. Um, you know, if we play out a scenario where he's still day to day, Heineman's not kept as a third catcher, um, so maybe you're a little less willing to use a, a catcher in the DH spot. Kevin Biggio has had some big moments. Over the last couple of weeks, he's still not hitting well overall on the season. It's been his worst offensive season, but he has shown a little bit of a pop. He has had some pretty big moments in late inning situations, whether it's pinch hit or, or the game winning home run the other day. What is, is there a path? Do you think to, to Kevin Biggio carving out a little bit more of a role right now? Or is this, you know, the, the role he's going to occupy for now and maybe even smaller if, if they do add some, some bench depth that as you've suggested they should. Well, I think he has a chance to carve out more playing time for himself, for sure. And this is a guy who struggled so much at the beginning of the year, but the Jays really liked him going into this season. And if you look at the last few weeks, it has been better, even setting aside the the big swing on Sunday, obviously a season-defining swing <laughs> for Kevin Biggio to this point. I mean, that's that's been an incredible development for him. Um but, you know, I just pulled it up here. His last 14 games, he is hitting 294 with a 973 OPS. I mean, that's that's pretty good. Obviously, we're cherry picking here. It's small sample, all that stuff. But I, I think you look at, at how coaches and coaching staffs make these decisions for playing time. They definitely want to play the hot hand. They definitely roll with guys who are doing well. So I would think we see Kevin Biggio a couple times in this series against the Orioles. And you just kind of go from there. I mean, there's always... The, the thing with him is even if the Blue Jays go out and upgrade their bench, as I'm as I'm saying they should, well, that probably doesn't even impact Kevin Biggio because he's not even close to the last guy on the bench. You still have Heineman. You still have Nathan Lucas. So Kevin Biggio is probably the first guy on the bench, and I see him continuing to get uh, reps on this team, and I bet by the time it's all said and done, he's probably appeared in close to 100 games in the regular season. Yeah, it's uh, it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. He's already appeared in, in 41 here. And it's funny, you you picked the exact same range of games that I picked. I had his, his 14-game stretch uh, in front of me as well and small samples and all of that. I'm curious, Ben, so Arden kind of asked Kevin this on the field after the game on Sunday um, about trying to be a little bit more aggressive. He had jumped early in account earlier in that game. He he had taken a, a really good 0-2 swing. He was obviously aggressive on that home run. For a guy who's, at least at the major league level, his career has been defined primarily by his patience and his ability to take a walk. 
how tough an adjustment do you think it is to that Biggio is going through now where, you know, pitchers have caught up They're They're not really afraid of Kevin Biggio um, to, you know, to the degree they maybe were in 2019 when, when he was hitting for power pretty regularly, like that balance where you're naturally a pretty patient guy and want to work a good plate appearance and want to take some walks. But, you know, the way pitchers are approaching you right now suggests, hey, you, you got to be a little more aggressive. How how does Kevin Biggio navigate that? How how big a part of what he's going through right now is that element of it? I find it really interesting, and I think there's an ebb and flow to it. I think that there's an action-reaction element. I mean, you know, when we talk about pro athletes, you know, and, and an athlete who's, you know, quote-unquote not being aggressive enough, you know, it almost becomes like kind of loaded. But the reality is... Kevin Biggio is very selective and has been very selective in his career because it's worked and it's worked really well. It's allowed him to make it to the major leagues. It's allowed him to stay in the major leagues for parts of five seasons. And then this year and even last year, it kind of stopped working. It's it's his patient approach did not serve him anymore because as you said, pitchers just started challenging him in the zone, not allowing him to flex his plate discipline. So under those circumstances, now that pitchers have made that adjustment, the league clearly deciding to challenge Kevin Biggio, then he has to respond and he has to become more aggressive. And so I don't think his plate discipline has gone away. You know, I don't think that that skill of, of discerning where balls and strikes lie has disappeared, but he has had to adjust and, you know, he's probably never going to be a guy who who pounces on every last mistake. But if he can make pitchers pay often enough, then you can look at a, a still a hitter who's capable of being, let's say, a league average hitter. But it might take a different form where there's a bit less on base and a bit more power. So that's something that, that Gunnar Henderson on the Orioles side has been dealing with as well. He started this season. And, and of course, uh, I'm not drawing a comparison directly to Biggio because Gunnar Henderson is, is a top prospect and a potential franchise third baseman. Um, we're talking about trying to get Biggio to, you know, top bench guy level. Gunnar Henderson has maybe superstar potential, but he's gone through a similar thing where like every Orioles prospect they bring up has a good sense of the strike zone, swing decisions, swing decisions, swing decisions. Um, and even though he's a, a higher strikeout guy, he is a guy who can work a walk and be patient. And he's talked about how one of the keys to his breakout, he's been the hottest player in baseball in June. He, he just won uh, player of the week um, is being a little bit expanding the zone a little bit more early in counts. Now that you have a, a comfort level for how pitchers are, are pitching you. And he had a quote, um, I've been starting to swing earlier in counts. If it's the area I want to go and do damage with seems pretty straightforward, but having that plan and, and having discipline in your head and good plate appearances in your head while also balancing, Hey, if I get something in my zone, I got to jump early. That's a tough thing for anyone to learn. Even someone with experience like Biggio, when we look ahead to this Orioles series, with Henderson hitting at that level that he is and with him capably being aggressive more in counts, the Henderson-Rutchman duo at the top of the Orioles lineup, if they structure it that way, what do the Blue Jays pitchers need to be aware of it and how challenging is it to have you know a guy in Henderson at the top who is as aggressive as he is right now and then Adley Rutschman after who is without exaggeration, the most patient hitter in baseball. What, what is, you know, a Chris Bassett or a Jose Barrios have to be aware of with that dynamic? Yeah, it is. It is a really tough uh, group of young hitters. And, you know, I, I think that for someone like a Chris Bassett, 
he's probably a tough matchup for these guys in the sense that he can think along with them and even think ahead of them. And ultimately what Chris Bassett can do is he can throw strikes with so many different pitches. So any, you know, maybe a hitter like Henderson is comfortable swinging at a pitch that he likes early in the count, but he has no idea which pitch it's going to be because Chris Bassett is able to keep, keep them off balance in that way and execute within the strike zone on in so many different ways. So I think that's going to be really fascinating to watch. Um, but ultimately, you know, for all these players, the the decision of what you swing at and what you don't is is really at the core of of everything. And I think even not to totally sidetrack this, but I think of Vlad Jr. when when I think about swing decisions because he's a guy who, you know, when you look at him now compared to where he was a few years ago, he swings more and he swings more outside the zone. And if we're just talking, you know, little percentage points, but these things can really add up in the course of a season where you're batting five or 600 times. Okay. So last one for you. And this is a little, you know, again, inside baseball, it's, it's almost more of an off season conversation, but it was in your notebook that you, that you had up on the weekend. And again, everyone can go to sportsnet.ca uh, for all the work you'll be doing over the course of this Orioles series on the written side. Uh, you mentioned that, Within Alec Manoa's demotion, and, and there's no accusation here of service time manipulation because Alec Manoa was pitching very, very poorly and has gone down to the minors on merit, even if it's a, a little tough for the Blue Jays, you know, rotation-wise to withstand for the next little bit. If he is down there for 20-plus days, he's no longer on track to be Super 2 arbitration eligible. And if he's down there for, say, more than a month, it, it's hard to see a scenario in which he becomes super two eligible, depending on even if that cutoff moves, because the super two is not a firm cutoff. It's a percentage of the league population. Anyway, all of that is to say a potential trickle down of the Manoa demotion is him not reaching arbitration until a year later. Um, How much are you watching that as a side plot here? Or or are you under the assumption that once Manoa went down, once it was a decision to the Florida complex league and not triple a, that this is going to be a month plus experiment anyway, and the clock's not really ticking. Well, it's going to be really interesting to see exactly where it lands. (laughs) I definitely have my guess though. You know, (laughs) I'm not holding my breath that, Alec Manoa is going to be back up, you know, when the Blue Jays return to Toronto, for example. Like, I just, I don't think, I do think that he's going to make a couple of starts down there and it takes just some time. We'll learn probably a bit more about that today from from John Schneider, or at least I'll certainly ask him about it um, if there are any updates. But I just never got the, the sense that this was going to be a super short-term thing. Now, again, they haven't made any firm decisions, so you never know how it lands, but... I, I the reason I wrote this and the reason that it, it jumped out at me is is I I do believe that Manoa is not going to be arbitration eligible this year as a result of that. And you think about, you know, remember this is a guy who had the Blue Jays renew his contract. He did not agree to uh sign that contract with the Blue Jays. They renewed it unilaterally. Um so he's he's watching the business side of the game. There were some reports that the Blue Jays approached him about an extension, um, at least in in loose terms. Um, this offseason didn't get done, obviously. So this is a side of it. And it all starts with performance on the field. And that's where Manoa's focus is, I'm sure. And that's where the Blue Jays are focused as well. But, you know, you start zooming out and this is a pretty big um, swing from being arbitration eligible and starting that clock and starting to earn big money compared to, all right, you're still pre-arb and you're still, you know, trying to work your way to that point that you finally qualify for arbitration. Yeah, and and on top of which, you know, if you're talking about 
what extension figures look like having a, an extra year of in the arb system. And like, we're seeing that with Vlad, it's the difference between Vlad and Bo where Vlad was super two eligible. And so he's already making more money and that's a higher baseline to, you know, do long-term negotiations from and buy out your arbitration years from, whereas with Bo Bichette, it, it was at a much lower number. So uh, interesting wrinkle there. And Ben, I look forward to that update from, John Schneider via you uh, on Twitter a little bit later. Um, have a good time in Baltimore, man. You, is is that high on your list of uh, cities to visit when you're on the road? You know what? I really love Camden Yards. I think Camden Yards is just a phenomenal. I mean, this is hardly a hard take, uh, a hot take, I should say. But uh, yeah, Camden Yards is awesome. And the weather here is very uh, mild and pleasant. So that's always good. The last time I was here, I was doing my pregame hits with Hazel. And uh, I, I think I was like sweating, like so. It was like it was like 35 degrees Celsius, and even hotter at field level. So I had like a towel when she threw the clips. I was just like wiping my brow so as not to, you know, <laughs> totally be drenched in sweat. So yeah, it's very, it's mild, it's comfortable, beautiful ballpark. So yeah, happy to be here, and should be a good few days. All right, Ben. Well, keep up the great work, and we'll be uh, we'll be reading and following and bugging you again if there is uh, news out of Baltimore at any point. Have a good series, man. Thanks, Blake. Have a good call tonight. Ben Nicholson-Smith, uh, MLB editor and columnist at sportsnet.ca. And I forgot for a second that I'm on the call for these games. Uh, Dean Kramer against Chris Bassett tonight at 7 o'clock. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk to former Toronto Blue Jays pitcher Jesse Litch. Uh, we're going to hear about what it's like to manage in the MLB Draft League as Jesse Litch helps get the next generation of players ready for not only the MLB Draft, but a potentially um, their next college steps uh, as well. This was a new league that was created in, in 2021 uh, from Major League Baseball, and we're already starting to see some of the early success stories. Guys picked in the 6th, 7th, 20th round uh, start to make their way up a little bit through uh, affiliate. But we'll also kick around some of Jesse Lich's time with the Toronto Blue Jays. That's next on Jays Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan and Sports at 360. Big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in Leafsland. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Had a little panic there because uh, that is not the instrumental version of that song. And I don't know when it's uh, when it gets all Eminem about it. That is Till I Collapse, which was the walkout song, the warm-up song for a long time of Toronto Blue Jays starting pitcher Jesse Litch, who's going to join us in a moment here. Jesse is currently the manager of the Williamsport Crosscutters of the MLB Draft League. That's something Major League Baseball introduced in 2021 to help get amateur-level players ready for uh, their draft and their entry into professional baseball. Um, we've already started to see some of the returns of that 2021 class who were drafted. You know, we haven't had a top five round pick out of there, but but a lot in round six through 20, some undrafted free agents, guys starting to make their way up uh, through affiliate ball. Uh, Jesse Litch is the manager of the Williamsport Crosscutters there. He joins us now. Jesse, how you doing, man? Thanks for coming on. No, no problem. Appreciate you guys having me. So how how has it been joining joining MLB Draft League? I know it's it's a relatively new thing, even though the Williamsport Crosscutters themselves have a have a pretty rich history. You come in last year, you you have some really early success with them, one of the best seasons that franchise has ever had. Um, but the MLB Draft League 
portion of it specifically, you know, what are your goals and your aims there as a manager in that specific environment? Uh, I mean, realistically, it's, it's kind of just be a guide for these guys that are coming out of college, high school, junior college. They've already got the talent. They've already got the knowledge of the game. It's just a matter of trying to make that transition into pro ball a little bit easier and just, you know, maybe fine tune or polish a couple things that may be needed that scouts want to see and, and kind of give them the, the, the wherewithal to be themselves and just play the game that, that they love. So in your particular role, how much are you talking to scouts or, or teams or people at the league about, you know, hey, there's a, there's a Creed Watkins. What, what are you looking for from him? You know, we know the fastball and sliders legit, but what does Creed Watkins need to, to work on? How much of that is you kind of diagnosing that with the players? And how much of that is you trying to feel out from the league to help the player uh, show what they need to show? Uh, I mean, the the scouts come here pretty open-minded. Like, they come and talk and get your knowledge and kind of, you know, they rely on, I think, the managers in the league to kind of help them. Um, I think every every manager in the league is an ex-big leaguer, so they've done it or, or have have been there in some capacity. I know Dave Trimley was a manager in the big leagues. Um, he's in state college. But, you know, for, for the players, it's it's kind of like just – getting getting them you know comfortable and and have fun and and kind of you know enjoy the game with with some minor tweaks here and there but like you know certain guys like a creed Watkins, like he came in last year and he came off of a broken back and it was more of a a, a mental thing that kind of had had a little gap there that he had the 99 still in the tank it was just a matter of understanding that he he hasn't really, he, he's going to be fine. Nothing. He's been repaired. Everything's good. And I, I've been through all that stuff. Cause I, so I was kind of, I was pretty good to help with that, with the mind. And, you know, by the end of that, that season last year, he was throwing 99 again. So, you know, those, that, that's the fun part for me, having guys come in and you see the adjustments made and the, the progress made. I mean, we got plenty of guys in pro ball now that are having a lot of success and, you know, the league itself is, is something that is, is huge for the players and, you know, agents. And it's not just the, the, the professional agents, it's colleges too, because of the portal. Like, I mean, I think half my team right now is in the portal. So I'm not just taking, uh, you know, calls from college uh, pro teams. I'm taking calls from tons of colleges as well. That's great. And then I'm sure it's good development for your own coaching uh, side as well, getting to be in the, in the manager spot there as well. Uh, I'm curious. So I, I know that, you know, you were with the Atlanta Braves organization for a little bit. Um, you've also done some coaching at the international level. You were part of the MLB development center in China. Uh, you were a pitching coach for the Philippines as, as they try to qualify for the world baseball classic. And, and I saw you tweet recently that you'd love to be involved with baseball United, the new professional league that's launching in the middle East and South Asia with a few former baseball players kind of attached to uh, the creation of that league. Are, are you finding more as you go here that your, your passion lies in helping expand the game globally to places like Philippines, China, uh, middle East and South Asia. I mean, that's definitely something I love. I, I mean, I love traveling. I love, you know, being able to see, you know, the game that I grew up on, the game that I, I love, you know, played around the world, not just internet, like not just in, in our nation. And, you know, I guess Latin America is never going to lose baseball. But, you know, being able to have the game and, and potentially be a part of, you know, stuff throughout the, the whole, you know, the whole world is definitely something that I'm intrigued by and something that I've really enjoyed. 
um, would love to stay involved with all that stuff. But, you know, it's, it's a, it's a game. It's, it's something that kids should have fun playing. It's something that, you know, I know growing up myself, even when I got to the big leagues, I still had a ton of fun. I still do it as a manager and try and keep it as, as fun as possible and, and, you know, make it, not as much a job as much as it is, you know, a good time for these players. Well, that's uh, I mean, it's a good perspective to be able to, to bring in. I'm sure a good energy because it is, I'm sure a slog for these guys at, at some points in their career at some times on the development curve. I know you had mentioned a little before that, you know, um, in the case of, of Creed Watkins, you know, you having been through some of the injury stuff helped, you know, you relate to him and kind of guide him. I know that's also something you were kind of focusing on in the Atlanta Braves organization, more on the rehab side. Um, I, obviously, I, I don't want to spin it as negative as like, oh, you went through all these injuries and that's something that um, you can help players with. But, you know, the mental side of that, having gone through that and being able to relate to players as they're working their way back, um, have you found that that's kind of somewhere that, that you're able to excel with pretty early in your coaching career, just, just reaching those guys on their level and kind of guiding them? Uh, yeah, I would say that's probably my biggest asset in a sense of like, you know, being able to help with whatever it may be mentally, physically, like just trying to, you know, get them the understanding that, you know, it's their career don't disrespect it, but also take care of your body, take care of a lot of things. And, you know, having my, my past and what I've been through kind of definitely helped me, you know, mentally get through stuff, but like, also like, you know, you, you have an understanding of like, okay, this could cause this or this, you know, let's, let's take it easy today. Like let's give you a day or two to, to let that, you know, kind of calm down. So you're better in three days. I'd rather have you pitching at a hundred percent or playing at a hundred percent than 80%. So in addition to, um, the, you know, the injury side of things, how much have you been able to take from your own career w with the Blue Jays? And then I, I'm particularly curious, you know, it, it's not like you were pitching that long ago, but in terms of our access to things like data and, and you know, the science side of things, pitch design or, or those special cameras and things like that, um, how much... Are, are you relying on your own experience as a pitcher and what you can pick up, you know, just, just as someone who knows baseball so well, and, and how much are you, you know, incorporating that kind of stuff, the, the newer stuff that we have to help pitchers? Well, I mean, the beauty of this league also is like, we have live track, man. We have rap soda. We have all the data needed here. We have, you know, we have an analytics team. All three, I mean, I had a, I had an analytics team last year consisted of three guys and all of them are in professional baseball now. So, <laughs> You know, that's something that obviously I, I take pride in. I think that that's awesome. You know, the guys came in, you know, not necessarily raw, but like as far as the pitching side of it, that's that's kind of where we, we hit it off pretty well because they were they were teaching me a lot of the analytics side of it, and I was teaching them a lot of how to explain it and how to put it into kind of baseball terms. So, you know, my side of it here, like we'll do advanced hitting meetings, we'll do advanced pitching meetings and try and get them, you know, comfortable with professional baseball. But I let my analytics guys do the, do the, the meetings. So that way it helps them. I kind of put it into the, the words for the players if needed. And, you know, last year with those guys, by the time we finished the season, you know, they were, they were ready to roll. They were, you know, given the meetings. I didn't have to say anything. Everything was understood by the players. So, you know, from my standpoint, being able to implement all that stuff and learn it is, is great. And, you know, that's where having those guys around and it's not just player development. It's also coach development. I have a great staff here. I had one last year as well. And that's part of, you know, 
what I, what I try and, you know, put together as well, like helping those guys better themselves to make their careers a little bit easier and better when they get going out of here, man, I got to say that's, that's as close to a perfect answer as you can get that, that level of, you know, specificity, but also communicating and the collaboration there. I think, you know, obviously hitters or pitchers coming up now have, grown up with access to some of that stuff, but the communication component is, I think still kind of, you know, the biggest thing we in baseball ha- have to cross as a hurdle. So it, it's awesome to hear that, that that's a big part of how you use that stuff. Um, Jesse, that that's about your coaching career, but I do want to, I do want to look back on, on a little bit of your blue Jays time. And I know you were tweeting about recently. Uh, it was the anniversary of when you had first come up eight and two thirds innings in your MLB debut with your dad in the crowd, no less um, that moment it, is, does that still stand out to you as kind of like the biggest moment of your career? The one you, mo- you look back on most fondly. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, there's no better day than your debut for sure. <laughs> and I mean, it was, it was special beyond that with being my dad's birthday and, you know, obviously filling in for the late Roy holiday. Like there was a lot of special memories that that day. Definitely. I, I, I won't forget. I definitely, you know, cherish every moment of it, but like, you know, you it, like anything, it's, it's, it's a step towards your future and, and what, what's going to come. And, you know, my, my future has led to where I'm at now sitting behind my desk and managing. And, you know, I utilize a lot of that stuff to, to help, you know, further, further my coaching career as well. So when it comes to the way pitchers have to pitch now, and I'm not sure exactly what the pitch timer is like in MLB draft league, but have you, when, when you're able to check out major league ball, have you appreciated that now everyone is kind of forced to pitch as quickly as you pitched? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's definitely cool. I know there's been some guys that have have had some some hiccups here and there, but it's made games a little quicker. It makes it a little bit, you know, uh, I, I guess uh, interesting because there is some kind of, you know, strategy behind what you got to do and pickoffs and all that. So it 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 makes the pitchers think a little more for sure. Hitters, you know, they got to get in the box within eight seconds. You know look at the picture and all this other stuff. So it's definitely messed up some timings. I mean, you think back on, on, on guys that were just like Garcia Parra. Like I would have loved to have seen how <laughs> he would have kind of went, went with the pitch clock. Cause I mean, he stepped out everything undid his, his um, batting gloves, put them back on, went back in the, so like there's a lot of guys that it would have been tough for back in the day, but like anything, it's adjustments. The game's full of adjustments. You got to be able to make the adjustments to, to succeed. And, and that's just another one of those things that they've kind of implemented. It's another adjustment that hitters and pitchers have to make. And uh, so far I've seen, it's been, it's been pretty successful. So you were with the blue Jays, you know, 2007 to 2012 and a little before that in their minor league system as well, uh, after being drafted, uh, you know, in 2004 with them, the, the the debut aside, are there any other you know favorite memories that stand out from from your time with the Toronto Blue Jays? I know you had a couple complete game shutouts mixed in there too, which I don't think those are even allowed anymore. Um, what what uh, what stands out to you about your your couple years here in Toronto? Uh, I mean, honestly, like there's there's so many memories. I mean, pitching in pitching in Canada and Toronto, like for the whole nation, was obviously a huge thing. And it was something that I'll always cherish. And, you know, I remember pitching in Seattle on Canada day. That was, that was huge. Everyone from, from BC would come down and we were like a home team there on Canada day. So that was, that was a pretty special one that I still talk about to this, this moment. And it was definitely, it's, it's funny because I know specifically 
I made an error that game, which in 08, like I probably had a chance to win the gold glove, but I made an error in that game. And that error specifically became my baseball card from that year. So I, I noticed that one very like that one I see all the time because I'll get cards and I'll be like, Oh yeah, I remember this game. I'm wearing the, I'm wearing the, 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 um, Canada Day hat pitching in <laughs> Seattle, and this play was the only ball that was hit back to me that I threw away. <laughs> That's a, and you're a bit of a, a card guy, right? So that that probably uh, means a lot yeah. to you. Oh yeah, I'm a big card guy, big card guy, and you know, yeah, it's definitely something. It's it's a story for sure. It's a story for sure that <laughs> it's it's you know made out like I know right now I'm actually like I'm having a book written um, about kind of my my career and and growing up from Tampa, from bat boy to big league. So that's something that, uh, you know, hopefully at some point soon we'll, you know, come out and, and, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, absolutely, man. And we'll have to have you, uh, back on to, to talk about that and, and promote it a little bit, uh, before that's coming out. Cause that's uh that's an awesome story from, yeah. Back in your, uh, your raised days, um, Jesse Litch, yeah. thanks so much for taking the time out, man. And, uh, best of luck for you and the cross cutters with the rest of the MLB draft league. I appreciate it. Definitely look out for some of the guys here. There's a lot of talent and there's, throughout the whole league, there's going to be a lot of draft picks some guys to watch for sure. So it's, it's definitely a, a huge thing for these players to uh, be seen and, and a lot of talent for, for you guys to look at. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll have you back on if the Jays end up drafting uh, drafting a cross cutter in, in one of those mid to late rounds. Thanks, Jesse. Awesome. Thank you guys. Jesse Lich, manner of the manager rather of the Williamsport Crosscutters of the MLB Draft League, of course, a former Toronto Blue Jay, eight and two thirds in his debut. And I mentioned he had two complete game shutouts in 2008. You just, I mean, that's a, that's a Chris Bassett thing. Now he's a, I, I think the only one, I, I, the way I understand it is you just get one permission for one guy to do it once a year uh, is the way it works. Now uh, Bassett did that a little bit earlier this year. Uh, Chris Bassett is on the Hill tonight. He'll take on Dean Kramer and the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, if you haven't memorized everything about Dean Kramer, because it feels like you're, you're having Groundhog Day facing him, uh, a reminder of what you're looking for tonight. He's a guy who came up as a bigger fastball with a, with a big loopy curve, and he was more of a swing and miss guy. Didn't really work for him. Last year, he, he's like, okay, you know, I'm going to add a sinker. I'm going to add a cutter. I'm going to add all these weird tweaks to my fastball, and I'm going to become a soft contact guy. That really worked last year. It is not working so far this year is a 489 ERA. Uh, the underlying metrics are even worse than that. And yes, he does. He is going to mix in six different pitches. Um, he'll throw all six to righties. He, he kind of ditches the sweeper against lefties um, and, and uses that curveball instead. But none of those pitches, you know, is particularly elite. The fastball is 95, so not bad. And he'll throw that, um, you know, in, in all sorts of counts and locations, but everything else is just kind of there. And the result has been, again, a 489 ERA and underlying metrics that are even worse. So what do the Blue Jays look like against him? They faced him on May 21st. If you remember that 11 inning game, they lost eight to three, the Jimmy Garcia blow up game down at Rogers center. That was kind of at the peak of the, the Blue Jays can't hit with runners in scoring position stretch over five and a third innings that day. Dean Kramer gave up two walks and nine hits to the Blue Jays. So 11 base runners over five and a third inning. Uh, they only managed one run because they went three for 16 with runners in scoring position. They had a couple guys on base in pretty much every inning. Uh, the Blue Jays have faced him a, a bunch. There are some guys with real sample here. Interesting night for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Because even though Camden does not play particularly hitter friendly in left field, he is six for 19 
with four home runs in his career uh, against Dean Kramer, Alejandro Kirk, Santiago Espinal, Kevin Kiermeyer, also guys who have had some success against Kramer. Uh, on the other side of things, Bo Bichette is three for 17. Matt Chapman's one for 12. George Springer, three for 16. Whit Merrifield, two for 13. That's a lot of medium sample, not great results. We'll see how it all goes. If it's anything like the last time, they're going to be able to get bats to balls. They're going to be able to draw some walks. It's just a matter of, as it has been so often this year, can the Blue Jays bring those around? Uh, three for 16 with runners in scoring position last time they faced them. Uh, and I'm sure Friday's one for 13 with runners in scoring position is not far out of mind for you. Um, that was great talking to Jesse Lich. That was a lot of fun. Uh, ben Nicholson-Smith, Chris Black, Steve Slidkowski of Pup the Band. Uh, thanks to all of those guests for coming on to producer Jeff as a party, Lance Kennedy and Jennifer Rolnick uh, behind the glass. Blair and Bark will be with you at five o'clock to continue setting this game up as a programming note. The Jeff Merrick show is next. It's going to run as it usually does across the network and on sports at 360. But at one o'clock on sports at 590, the fan Ben Ennis is going to take over for uh, an extended version of drive time because the Toronto Raptors are going to introduce new head coach, Darko Ryakovich, um, Ryakovich rather, Ben Ennis will have that for you uh, live here on Sports at 590 from down at, at OVO Center. Uh, JSOC Plus, back at 10 a.m. tomorrow. I will talk to you then. Have a good day.